Kia ora and welcome to the Kerry Podcast, where we highlight research that weaves together the Word of God in Scripture, the world in which we live, and the work of Christian discipleship. We invite you to join us as we explore ways in which we can live, serve, and witness with Jesus in our constantly changing world. Tēnā koutou katoa, my name is John Tucker and I'm the principal of Kerry Baptist College. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Michael Rhodes. Uh, Michael's a lecturer in Old Testament here at Kerry. He's recently completed a book which is about to be published entitled Just Discipleship, Biblical Justice in an Unjust World. I love the way Michael weaves together uh, the words of God in Scripture, the world in which we live, and the work of Christian discipleship and ministry in this book, but also um, in his teaching. If you're a disciple of Jesus, if you love the Bible, if you want to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God, then I think you'll find this conversation so rich. Michael, it's it's great to be talking with you uh, today. I'm really looking forward to discussing your latest book. But before we get there, how did you get here? Tell us a bit about yourself, about your journey. Yeah, well, the journey of this book is um, really having kind of grown up in an evangelicalism that was getting excited about justice and being a part of that kind of movement and so being involved with community development efforts and um, working for a church that was multi-ethnic and multi-class and all that stuff and and yet finding myself struck by how hard it was to do that work and how um essentially incompetent (laughs) so many of us who were raised and discipled in this kind of evangelicalism that i love and am a part of Mm. but disciples as disciples we were fairly incompetent at this justice work Mm. to which god had called us so um really while i was working in community development in south memphis in the u.s i don't know uh 10 11 years ago i started thinking man surely the Bible gives us more about not what does justice look like, but also how do we become people who do justice? And that question um, drove me through seminary and made me want to go get a PhD um, and was part of my dissertation research. And then uh, this book, Just Discipleship, was basically the set of questions that I had when I turned in my dissertation. So I've, I've sort of been working on it since then. And and so that's that's how the book came along and how I got to New Zealand. I still don't know. I was just continuously <laughs> confused by that. Um, but I'm so delighted to be here. And I think part of it was uh, through a variety of strange circumstances. Uh, when I found myself interviewing at Cary and clicked on the website for the first time, I saw that intersection of word and world and work uh, so clearly. And that's such a that's why I'm interested in scripture is to see how it shapes us and transforms us for God's work in the world. And so that was just so exciting to see that at a, at a, at a place like Cary. And so that's probably the beginning of how I got here anyway. <laughs> mm, yeah. So, yeah. Um, a, a marriage made in heaven. Mm. It's, um, it's been great. So let's, let's talk about this book because, you know, it's coming out in a little while and um, it's not your PhD. It's not, mm. you know, your doctoral work. It's, it's definitely a subsequent piece of work and a significant piece of research. Broadly speaking, what's it about? Mm. And um, and why did you write it? Yeah, so that question, like, how do we become just? Um, if I could sum up the biggest shift for me uh, along the way, uh, one of them was, I think, uh, the Christianity that I 
was familiar with was very comfortable with the idea that the Bible changes the way we think and the way we think changes the way we live. And, you know, for uh, my ecclesial tradition is a tradition who had a lot of good thoughts. And I still think, broadly speaking, got a lot of those thoughts right. Um, but we were horrendously, egregiously wrong on all sorts of justice issues. Um, I'm from Memphis, a majority black city, arguably one of the cities with the one of the worst racist legacies in the country. Um, and the church that I was raised in was on the wrong side of all of that. Mm. And uh, one of the poorest cities in the country. And so the, just a, this is a church that loves Jesus. It's a church mm. that engages regularly, sincerely with scripture yeah. and got, 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 got race wrong. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and economics wrong, I think largely often. And so we were wrestling with this. And so you go back to the idea, the Bible gives us different thoughts and we think different thoughts and then we live different lives. The Bible does say that, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But there's this whole other legacy that theologians and the Bible have always recognized, which is that what we do shapes who we are. That the rituals and habits and liturgies of our lives and of the church shape us either for discipleship uh, in line with Jesus or for discipleship in line with something else. And so this book is about what does scripture say about more whole life discipleship oriented towards justice? And the reason why I wrote it is because that's the question that I have been asking myself as a person raised in Christian communities that loves Jesus, taught me to love his word, and really do want to get matters of justice right, but so often getting them wrong. What are we missing? It's not just that we've missed good ideas. It's that we've missed that scripture calls us to this whole life program of formation um, in line with justice and in line with all sorts of other things, but in this case, justice and wanting to know uh, what that looks like. So this is me looking through scripture for what does scripture say about, about how our liturgies and stories and practices and habits might shape us for the work of justice. Mm, that's really good. We're just, you know, we're coming through three years of this pandemic and one mm. of the, one of the things that's done for us is to expose for many Christians mm. and, and churches and, and, pastoral leaders in the West, is that the, the poverty of our discipleship, mm. that we know lots of things, but that hasn't necessarily translated into doing um, mm. things differently. Yeah. Um, I think of Tertullian, the, you know, one of the early church leaders mm. in North Africa, who said disciples um, disciples are made, not born. Mm. Um, and you know, not for a moment was he denying the reality that we're saved by grace yes. through faith, but yes. you know, he, he's arguing that the scriptures do give us, and through Jesus, we have been given the means of grace by yes. which we we do apply ourselves, and there there is a pathway to walk yes. by which that formation can happen. And I think it's really exciting your book that mm. you're identifying some of these these resources, these means of grace to become disciples whose lives are marked by justice, mm. um, by you know the justice that that is God. So. Can, can you talk to us? I mean, I'd love to hear your reflections on what some of those those resources are. You, you mentioned practices and yeah. stories and scripture. Yeah, talk. Well, I just want to say that I think another big shift for me, you know, um, the Christianity that, that shaped most of my early life, you know, the, the one of the biggest concerns was legalism, right? That we would be trying to earn our salvation. And mm. I just want to say as clearly as possible mm. that if anyone anywhere ever thinks they can earn their salvation... <laughs> They're wrong. Yeah. Also, want to say clearly that the Bible has never taught that. That's not the message of the Old Testament. Um, grace always comes first. You know, the slaves get liberated from Egypt, then they get the law. 
Why? Because the law is a gift. It is a resource for the life of the already rescued people. And those are the exact categories that, say, Paul uses when he says, yeah, of course you've been freed from sin. So now proactively offer your bodies as instruments or weapons even of righteousness, or you could say justice there just as well. So offer your bodies as instruments of justice under the reign of grace. So, you know, I give a whole chapter in this book to um, how is this journey of just discipleship actually a journey of grace, where God's grace comes before us, it goes behind us, it's on us. Um, None of this is about you know, earning our way. It's all about living a life uh, liberated by God's love and grace and enabled to walk in step with the Spirit. Mm. Um, and so from that perspective, yeah, a couple a couple uh, things from the book that I've, I've seen. I mean, a big thing that sort of caught me off guard I'd never looked at before in the research for this book was looking at the Psalms. So, you know, I got really excited about the fact that, you know, God's people have always come together and sang together. And we have in the Psalms like 150 texts that, you know, the Holy Spirit (laughs) (laughs) co-authored that give us resources to decide what sorts of things should we be singing. And they're always singing about justice. They're constantly singing about justice. They praise God for doing justice. Uh, They complain to God about the injustice of the world. And give texts for God's people to cry out and lament when they're suffering injustice. And they give worshipers opportunity in the context of worship to, to pledge themselves to do justice. Hmm. You know, And so you think about um, part of the book's research was to, to take those themes and look at some contemporary worship music and say, what, what happens if the justice theme in the Psalter gets lost in the worshiping life? Maybe... Uh, gathered worship, the way we gather and sing, is part of how we're supposed to become just. And we've cut ourselves off from that practice because we don't sing the psalms and we don't sing the way the psalms sing. So can you can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so there's been great research done about laments. And you know, Sung Chan Ra, in his book Prophetic Lament, looked up and all the, he evaluated hymnals and the top 100, I think, Christian contemporary songs at the time. And he said, basically, none of these are lament. So in a much smaller way, I tried to look at that with justice. So I looked at the top 25 Christian contemporary songs that are, you know, from the sort of copyright licensing group. And, you know, um, they're good songs. They're songs that I sing often with tears in my eyes, uh, but they never talk about justice. They never talk about the poor. They never talk about uh, the orphan and widow unless they talk about orphans in a very spiritual sense. And they never ask any questions yeah. of God. Whereas if you open the Psalms, it's like every third Psalm is, you know, where are you? Why are you? What's delaying you? You know? Um, and so, yeah, the, 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 the way we sing, and the hymnals aren't a lot better. That's what other studies have shown on this theme, um, is, is that we're not singing the way Scripture calls us to sing. And so we may not be coming the people that God calls us to be and has given us these song texts to shape us to be, um, that's like one one kind of practice that I that I look at. Um, I, I in a, in another chapter, um, I look at uh, kind of the the examples of uh, Joseph and Daniel yes. as two people who have opportunity to influence politically places that are not Israelite. So they're, they're the people of God involved in politics outside of God's people. And one of the things I look at is 
the way that Daniel advocates for justice. And I, uh, maybe somewhat controversially, think that while Joseph gets a lot of things right, when it comes to his political practice, he actually makes some mistakes. And so Genesis 47, you see Joseph enslaving the Egyptians in ways that I try to show from the text very closely. Uh, the narrator of Genesis wants us to hear what Joseph does to the Egyptians in Exodus, the Egyptians do to the Israelites. And so you get you get this example of how God's people can get political power wrong, and with Joseph as being kind of an example. Then I look at Daniel and how he stands up for justice with Nebuchadnezzar, and then I try to show how um, decisions that Daniel and Joseph make in relationship to the culture they're in, down to what they eat, <laughs> the way that Daniel prays and fasts, uh, the way Daniel engages with Scripture, um, all of these are sort of practices of discipleship that uh, enable Daniel to make this really serious contribution to justice and I think hinder Joseph from being able to make the same kind of contribution um, in Egypt. That's a, a much larger argument, um, but but there's the kind of stuff that I'm trying to do in the book. And each each chapter looks at a different sort of portion of Scripture, so there's lots in there to say, but those would be two examples right off the top. Mm. So um, when you think about these different practices mm. um, that scripture gives, singing, praying, another form of that, mm. um, is there anything else that comes to mind? Um, and I'm thinking particularly about us as individual disciples mm. who are mm. wanting to be formed in the way of Jesus, who are wanting to, to be his likeness and participate in his mission and, and you know, embody his justice yeah. Any, yeah. any any other reflections yeah yeah so two others i talk about in the book um one is feasting that's something i've written a lot about but in the feast um in deuteronomy uh the way you eat um determines who's in your family and then the family ethic requires you to make sure that the orphan and the widow and the immigrant get fed and that you lend freely to your neighbor and that you forgive debts all these really radical um, acts of economic justice that Deuteronomy celebrates, they all depend on you becoming a sort of person at the feast. And so the feast becomes this uh, eating with people, right? Eating with the marginalized in particular. And in that chapter, I look at the way, and you know, some of this may be different in New Zealand, but I imagine the trend's the same. In North America, um, people are more segregated by class than they've been in 50 years. So you are less likely to be around people from a different class where you live, where you go to school, where you work, uh, in, in, where you worship. We're segregated by class in every area of American life much more than we were in 1970. And so part of the argument that I make is if you don't have proximity, kind of this festal proximity that we see in Deuteronomy, you will not be able to get the sort of just structure that Deuteronomy celebrates. And so to me, um, the question of uh, practices of proximity, where are God's people? Where do they live? Where do they go to school? Where do they work? And if we're not fighting to be proximate with people from different uh, economic classes, and particularly the poor and vulnerable and oppressed, we're going to be undermining the quest of justice that scripture gives for us. So there's all sorts of practices of proximity that we could talk about. And then zooming to the other side of the canon, you know, First John talks about imitating Jesus as a practice that leads to, to, to justice. Uh, John says, um, we look to Jesus to see what we're going to be when he returns. And that because we have the hope that we will be like Jesus when we return, 
we will purify ourselves, that's John's language, in imitation of the purity that we see in Jesus. And that sounds really abstract, but the very next thing John starts talking about is love your brother and sister. How do you love your brother and sister? You lay down your life for them. Okay, So you get this imitation of we see what Jesus has done for us, self-sacrificial love, and then we imitate that. And that can sound really like kind of abstract. And so I love that the very next thing that John says in 1 John 3 is, brothers and sisters, if any of you sees a sibling who is poor and you have the world's goods and you don't help them and you close your heart to them, that's the language, how does the love of God remain in you? So you get this very practical, what does it look like to imitate Jesus self-sacrificially? It means, among other things, to care for the poor. But it says more than that. If you see your brother who's in need or sister who's in need and you close your heart towards them. So there is a practice that John is pointing to where we who have resources see the poor and what we often do is shut down our affections from them. Right? We, sh- we, we act, everyone has had this experience. You see someone in need, you see someone suffering and you actively shut down your affections, your, your, your sort of empathy towards them because you know subconsciously or consciously uh, that empathy leads to generosity. And, and John says, if you look at Jesus, if you see what he did for you on the cross, mm-hmm stir up those um, affections for your neighbor and let that lead to generosity. So those would be other practices that I think are real, quite strong that each of us can practice in our lives. I love your reflections on, on you know, the festal tradition in, in mm. Deuteronomy, the Old Testament, that, that I, I hadn't noticed that before reading some of your stuff here, that um, that we're invited, we're, we're exhorted to eat these meals mm with those who are mm. on the margins, with yeah. those who are poor. Yeah. Um, John Wesley talks about um, the, the means of grace. You know, he's mm. very much an evangelical, very much believes like us that we're saved by, by grace through faith. Um, but he says of the means of grace that God has given to us to grow up in Christ, mm. being with the poor, mm. visiting the poor, yeah. being in relationship with yeah. the poor is, is one of the central means of grace. Yes. Um, and it's somewhat controversial, but I mean, he's basically saying it's not good enough to, to, to throw some money at World Vision and allow mm. your conscience. Yeah, that's right. It's being in relationship that's with right. the poor that is transformational that's for right. you personally. And I think that's actually a theme. From, if you look from um, Genesis to Revelation, uh, the Bible's primary social safety net for the poor is inclusion in the family of God. Everywhere, scripture is relentless. The number, the first line of defense against poverty, injustice, suffering is that the family of God is a family that includes the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed, and that family takes care of one another. And you contrast that to the way that churches and Christians and Christian nonprofits talk about the poor as a group of people which is different from the church so we say our church needs to go out and help the poor i want churches to help the poor but note what's hidden in that line it's that the poor are not here and they are not us and there are no faith communities in the bible of which that's true so um if there are (laughs) if the poor are no longer with us right um then, then we may need to go out and help them. But the Bible also calls us to do some real soul searching about faith communities that, that are not of and among those who are suffering. And I think it challenges those communities 
um, to make changes, to shift, to figure out how to become communities of inclusion. Because that's, that's foundational to how Scripture uh, envisions the people of God and summons the people of God to live. So um, I'm keen to keep talking about, mm. about this very important book in a moment, but um, what, what's, how has this played out in your life? Um, I'm just quite keen uh, to... It hasn't. This is all academic. <laughs> I would keep it at arm's length. No, uh. like, <laughs> I, I, I mean, you, you, you haven't shut your affections down completely that. towards <laughs> um, the poor. So, yeah, I, I know something of your story, mm. but um, can you talk us through a bit of how this has found expression in your journey and in, you know, your families with Rebecca and the kids? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think um, in that feast chapter, the chapter on the feast in Deuteronomy, we draw a parallel between the feasting that's occurring where you, you, the feast is with God and the poor, the neighbor who is poor. Um, and I, I, I draw that into dialogue with um, John Perkins, the founder of the Christian Community Development Association's call to people to practice what he calls relocation. So basically summoning the people of God who may be from impoverished communities to consider staying there in those communities in order to serve them, but also calling on God's people who may not be from those poor communities or those struggling communities or those marginalized communities, um, communities that are on the edge, uh, who want to help to consider uh, living in those communities as part of that. And that practice of relocation has been the single most important um, missional practice of Rebecca and I's life. So um, we both come from fairly affluent, upper middle class kind of homes. And certainly in Memphis, you know, there it is a community where there is a clear right side of the tracks and wrong side of the tracks. But because of Perkins' kind of impact on us, um, which I talk about some in the book, um, when I went to work for a nonprofit in South Memphis, we moved into that neighborhood and we stayed there for 12 years. Um, and currently in New Zealand, we are uh, um, have just um, come alongside Urban Neighbors of Hope um, and are participating in their work in a community here in South Auckland um, and just get the very beginning of, of learning what all that means in this context. But I would say that that shift towards uh, proximity for me, it was so, it's so important because it just really opened my eyes to all sorts of things that I, I hadn't seen before, um, including the kind of structural injustice that is really obvious, right, from, from certain social locations, but very unobvious to me. When I, just to be very specific, when I moved into our neighborhood, I literally saw police officers talk to my neighbors in ways they would have not talked to me in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And I also saw that whereas people living outside this community, um, the home ownership situation is different in the U.S. Home ownership is broadly accessible in the U.S., unlike here in Auckland. Um, but whereas uh, people outside of our neighborhood could buy homes uh, at reasonable prices and hope those would be kind of assets that would appreciate, in our neighborhood, the home prices were in such a free fall that the only people buying homes were slumlords. And so, um, so experiences like realizing, ah, um, my neighbor is uh, uh, living in a slum house and we're going to take her slum lord to court with a lawyer who's volunteering their time and we lost, you know? And that neighbor was living in a house that had no heat through a Memphis winter where it's regularly below zero and that neighbor was living in a house with two functioning electrical outlets and we lost. Um, and so you start to see 
the different structures of injustice. And, and so that's another feature, but you also start to see how complex it is to navigate those. So I have a whole chapter in the book on Proverbs and, and, and trying to think about just wisdom. What does it look like to exercise wisdom for justice in complicated circumstances? And a lot of that is driven by my desire to be like, how in the world do you make progress on these problems, you know, um, which is very much born of, of my experience in, in uh, South Memphis. So I, I, there's lots of things we could say. One thing to say, which I just started with is I fall woefully short of the ideas in this book, right? So this is not a um, come follow me uh, <laughs> and, and it's not a hero story, um, but it is the, the aspects of scripture that have shaped me the most deeply mm. Um, from this book are places where Rebecca and I have experienced rich and our children, our four children, rich, life-changing kind of impacts. Mm. We've been talking mainly about our lives as individual disciples. Keen to shift gear a little bit and and focus a little bit more on some of your reflections around how we as as local church yeah. communities of faith can structure our internal lives yes. so as to, to be countercultural communities yes. that show the world what, what our just God is like. Yes. Yeah, you, any reflections on that from your research? Yeah, so, um, I mean, the Psalms thing we talked about is yeah. a huge yeah. thing, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think just generally uh, how we gather in the church. Like, what are the elements of our gathering? Is there space for lament? Is there space for pain? Is there space for people to be not all right? Um, there's often not in our worship spaces. And if you are talking about people who are suffering um, from poverty or injustice or racism or mental illness or exclusion because of being having a disability, any number of things, if there's not space for lament and outcry and demands to God for justice in the context of prayer, um, that church will not bear witness to the God of justice. And it's, it sounds like really radical, um, but I just want to say this again on the singing front. God has only, as far as we know, himself co-authored 150 songs. And we've got a whole 150 of them. Right? <laughs> and so I'm not saying we have to sing them every week, but I'm saying if over the course of a year our worship sounds nothing like the 150 that are the only 150 we have that God has like written and given to us, that might be problematic. So... You know, the singing thing, the worship thing. Um, I think the preaching of God's word, you know. Um, one of the arguments that I make in the very first chapter of this book is that justice is a way to talk about the whole story of the Bible. Does our preaching capture that? If not, it's not going to disciple us in that direction. Um, That's fascinating. So, you know, I'm conscious of, um, of you know, the, the, the whole biblical narrative being shaped in terms of, of mission mm. or, you know, Chris Wright or... or um, or kingdom, yeah. Uh, but you're saying even more sharply, justice yes. could be an integrating yes. theme. Yeah, the I, I know. Story. You know, I think caveat. I think any attempt to summarize the sprawling <laughs> narrative that is the Bible with one theme is going to emphasize some things better than others. But you know, Matthew says Jesus came to bring justice to victory, right? So Matthew positions Jesus in the middle of this prophetic word from the old testament that god would bring justice to victory and if you define justice um the way that i do following john golden gay as the faithful exercise of power and community it becomes easy to see why the lord loves justice the lord is addicted to justice right it's the foundation of his throne um and 
And the faithful exercise of power is central to who we are as people made in his image. And it's, yeah, so I definitely think that justice is um, a thread that ties the story together. And our preaching needs to, to speak to that. And then our preaching needs to bring that theme into contact with the concrete experiences of injustice of the people of God at the pews. And we won't hear those concrete experiences unless we're willing to lament and that's right and, and listen and be honest that's right and i think you know the, the the question of church's social locations we've talked about feasts and all that and like who's here and and why are they here um but i, I just want to say this very briefly uh, in the chapter on the lord's supper there's two practices hidden in there that i think any church can practice immediately okay and one is I just suggest that every once in a while we suggest the Lord we celebrate the Lord's Supper as an actual meal. Okay. Now I'm in favor of um, with John Calvin uh, the Lord's Supper at least once a week. <laughs> that would be my preference. Um, but but however often you celebrate it, uh, it was never no no meal in all of the Bible is celebrated as a ritual meal. There, there's not a ritual meal in the Bible. That's a, not a an actual full meal. abundant. Right. Real That's meals. right. So can we every once in a while, like maybe four times a year? Maybe at high celebratory days, you know, Christmas, Easter, Pentecost, whatever. Can we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a full meal? And can we try to make sure that the fullness of our community is present at it? And then one of the things that gets the Apostle Paul so mad at the Corinthians when they celebrate the Lord's Supper is that the way they gather at church um, reinforces who matters more and who matters less. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 and 12 says, you're ruining church because <laughs> you do that. But also in chapter 12, here's the solution. Uh, God has arranged his body to give greater honor to the parts of the body that lack it. In other words, the church is that community that gives special attention in the room to the people who are denied honor outside of the room. And, and yet often we give honor in the room to the very same people who get honor outside of the room. So any church can say, who are the constituents who are right here among us that are sidelined here because they're sidelined out there? Uh, it might be, I mean, you know, Christianity Today ran a story. Some people might be thinking like, justice, all oh, this is really big. We don't have, you know, Christianity Today ran a story a few years ago that um, children with autism, children on uh, with, with uh, Down syndrome are in church uh, that have lower church participation than their peers, right? So somehow uh, the church arranges its life to make life hard for people with autism and Down syndrome, just like the world arranges its life that way. And we could think about what it would look like to rearrange our churches, you know? Um, there are implications for women. There are implications for people with mental illness. There are implications for um, what are the ethnic groups that are... Uh, don't find a place, don't feel like they have an equal seat at the table in our civic life, and you also don't feel like they have an equal place in our church life. I mean, it's just explosive to take that lens to the work of the church. I love that, and I've always been, if I'm honest, a little confused by that that line in, in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul talks about the fact that, you know, those who have you know a given least honor in the world... Are, God has given special honor yes. in the church, and he, he, he loves it that way. He has made yes. it that way. Um, 
what do you think he's referring to particularly in that context? In that context, how, is, yeah. how are they being honoured? Yeah, you, you got you, so you got in first. Okay, so you got in First Corinthians. You know, not uh, God has chosen the foolish and the weak and the things that are not to shame the powerful and the strong. And and, and so, in Corinth, in the Greco-Roman world, we actually know this because of what Jesus says. Right, he talks to the Pharisees and he says, "You Pharisees compete for the seat of honour at the table." So we know just from that, even without doing any background research, that people were competing for the quote-unquote best seats. If you get into the background research, um, all over the Greco-Roman world, people are competing for honor and status. And one place they do that is at meals. And so meals are a place where you can honor the person who gave a big gift to the, to the group. Uh, meals are the place where you can honor the person who's really important. And you could honor them by giving them uh, preferable seating. You could honor honor them by giving them more food or better food, and this happened all over the ancient world, and um, it was apparently happening in Corinth. And and intriguingly, um, uh, uh, Paul says, when you celebrate the Lord's Supper like that, it makes you worse. You are gathering for the worse rather than better. And John Chrysostom, the early Christian commentator, said on that text. Uh, Paul says this because they should have gone for they're, at their meal. They should have gone forward unto virtue. Mm. Their liberality towards the poor should have increased by the way they gathered. Mm. And so, Paul seems to be saying, if if your if your life in the church mimics the unjust hierarchies outside the church, it is failing one of the things the church is supposed to do, and it's making you worse. So. Have you um, have you seen a church subvert the order of the world like this? Um, in, in you know, in your experience, I think it's I think there's a lot of people aspiring to this, mm. right? I think it's aspirational. I think you see it all over the place. Um, I, I remember uh, reading um, about uh, I can't remember that that guy's name. It escapes me, but he founded the church under the bridge. Uh, in Texas, where it's a church where the, the congregation literally meets under a bridge, where a lot of um, people who are experiencing homelessness live. And he talked about, in this in this talk he gave at the uh, Christian Community Development Association conference, about the links that they had gone to to make sure that everyone could participate. So they had people giving solos who were mentally ill and experiencing addiction and were not great soloists, but they were part of the choir because they wanted to contribute and they... Um, centered that and um, they were always looking for ways to include publicly and visibly uh, people from this community and what was crazy about that I can't remember where they were exactly but they were close enough to a university to where a lot of the other members were university students so these are the elite of the world worshipping alongside people who don't know where their next meal is coming from and the decision is made structurally um to prioritize the the honoring mm-hmm. the people who live under the bridge, I think this is something that every um, church that's striving to be multi ethnic has got to work on. And in our mm-hmm. my church, I've I've been involved with multi ethnic church plants since um, at least two thousand nine, um, and uh, this is a constant tension. You know, um, it's so easy. Uh, for multi-ethnic churches who have ethnic diversity in their congregations to structure their life together in ways that resonate most with the majority culture, you know? 
Um, when I was in Kenya, though, we were part of New City Fellowship, this lovely church in Nairobi. And, and they would have these, they were really wrestling with this because there were different um, black Kenyan tribal groups involved, but there were also Indian and Pakistani uh, diaspora Kenyans, and none of them got along with each other. And then there was also uh, refugees from the Congo, and then there's this hodgepodge of European missionaries who all tend to be really opinionated and frustrating. And, um, and so it was a really eclectic group. Um, but one sign that I saw that I thought was so brilliant was when we had potlucks, everybody would bring their dish, you know, but they'd often wear the clothing of their counterparts. So you'd see black Kenyan women wearing saris, and you'd see uh, Indian men wearing the traditional kind of Kenyan shirt. And it was just this like little, and I think it was very natural, but it was this little suggestion, you know, that we were being joined together across these lines. But it's hard, right? Because you think about in that context, okay, we're going to have a, a men's night. How do you decide what to do for the men's night? Because the the little slightly more well-to-do group people in the church have a very different idea than the, the young men walking across the street from the slum. Hmm. And how you make sure that you're prioritizing, you're giving greater honor to the members of society that lack it out there in here is like a daily constant question you know um my my the church does in the last 12 years uh downtown church and it's really working on on that kind of question of how you live multi-ethnically multi-class it's about who's in leadership yeah uh, it's part could be part of it um all sorts of things like that yeah. great great last question just yeah. you're, you're an old testament scholar mm. you love the bible it's the word of god and um and through the scriptures you know you 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 hear Jesus address you, and that has guided your journey, mm. you know, in, in formal theological study, but also in terms of your your ministry as a mm. as a pastor in church and a missionary in Kenya, and um, as someone who's now living in South Auckland with mm. your family, wanting to wanting to be a neighbour with the um, you know that relatively poor community mm. in material terms. Um, what would you say? In light of all of that, to those people in our churches today who feel as though the call to justice is something of a distraction mm. from the centralities of the gospel, and, mm. you know, and and I'm thinking particularly of the way in which throughout history, certainly in Aotearoa New Zealand, mm. there's often been a kind of like a, a tension between evangelism yes. and social justice. Yes. Um, yeah, how do you respond to that? What's your best pitch? for the place of justice in the heart of God and the life of the church? Um, in the, the beginning of God's missionary heart for the world in many ways, uh, after human sin and rebellion is the call of Abraham, where God calls this people and he says, through this people, I'm going to bring blessing to all the nations right, on earth. Um, that's what Abraham's called to be. He's called to be a family through whom God will bring blessing to all the nations. We know this text. If you fast forward to Genesis 18, the Lord repeats that dynamic. I've chosen Abraham so I can make him a family, bring a vehicle of blessing to all the nations, but he adds something. For I have chosen him so that he may keep the way of the Lord by doing justice and righteousness, so that I may bear about for him all that I've promised, and to teach his children to do likewise. So at the heart of the people of God's 
participation in God's mission is to be a certain kind of community characterized by righteousness and justice. And a lot of us are so used to thinking of justice as a bad thing, right? Like it's the judgment that we've escaped um, from God. There's a truth there because God's justice includes judgment. But when Job clothes himself in justice and righteousness, he says he puts it on like a, he puts his justice on and his righteousness on like a robe and turban. Um, then what he's doing, clothed in justice and righteousness, is uh, being a father to the fatherless, causing the widow's heart to sing, going to court with a stranger, being eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, smashing the teeth of the wicked, and snatching their victims from their jaws, right? And all of a sudden you realize that kind of justice and righteousness, right, is the kind of justice and righteousness that God loves, that's the foundation of his throne, and that he puts the center of the people of God's missionary call in Genesis 18. This is what Isaiah says, the vineyard of the Lord. You know, that picture, think about how Jesus talks about God's people as a vineyard. He gets that from Isaiah. When Isaiah talks about it, he says, God planted this vineyard. He went looking for fruit. He didn't find it. What's this all about? The vineyard of the Lord is uh, the people of Israel and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he went looking for justice, but he found injustice. He went looking for righteousness, but he found the outcry of oppression. So it's the assignment of God of what is close to his heart to his people. It's the way that his people failed. And that's the story that Jesus enters into, bringing justice to victory. Um, being the one who lives out God's faithful exercise of power in the world. And then who not only forgives us as unrighteous, unjust people, but gives us his spirit, sends us, in as the Father sent him, so send I you, Jesus says in John, mm -hmm. to fulfill this Abrahamic mission of being vehicles of blessing by living out God's justice and righteousness. And so I just, what I want to say to that person is, I hear you, I see you, I know that there are ways of talking about God and using justice language that do run roughshod over scripture, but to miss out the way, miss out on the way that God's justice and righteousness is central to what he's doing in the world, central to what we're being called to do in the world, central to what Jesus is making possible in the light of faith. If you take all that out, the Bible becomes almost incoherent. So for that person, I would just say there is this lovely, beautiful, explosive thread in scripture um, that our world desperately needs and that will not distract you one inch from the loving, saving life with Jesus that you love, but will rather renew and invigorate that. That's my pitch. <laughs> and um, you couldn't have a better pitch to come and study Old Testament. <laughs> yeah, introduction to Old Testament. That's right. That's right. That's right. Very good. Oh, Michael, so good to have you with us and so good to discuss mm. this um, really exciting book. Can't wait to get my hands on a copy. Mm. Do you have any spare copy? Any no, it's, it's, complimentary it's, copies? No? it's, it's all pre-sale right now, so okay. you're going to have to Google. Okay. But I'll get one for you when the time comes. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay, yeah. Bless you. Thanks, John. So Michael's book, Just Discipleship, is available now for pre-order and will be hitting the bookshelves in August 2023. Um, Michael's teaching a couple of courses at Kerry this coming second half of 2023. 
introduction to Old Testament, if you've never studied the Old Testament before, uh, or um, Wisdom and Worship, a wonderful study of the Psalms and some of the material we've been talking about, as well as some of the other worship literature in the Old Testament. And Michael also teaches Old Testament narrative and, uh, and prophets here at Kerry Baptist College. If you have enjoyed this podcast, Kerry has a range of pathways that can help you learn how to weave together God's Word, God's world, and God's work. For more information about on-site and distance study, visit kerry.ac.nz.